Welcome to Insightful Leaders. I'm your host, Ryan Stewart, and this is a show where I interview proven leaders in the customer insights and customer experience space who share their stories, strategies, and insights to drive meaningful change at your organization. I'm very excited to introduce you all to T.S. Balaji. T.S., as most people call him, is an experienced design and SaaS executive with a track record of creating and leading design and product groups. He's a strategist with a talent for quickly identifying new technologies, spotting trends, pioneering business models, and utilizing them to innovate and advocate on behalf of customers. He currently leads the service design and customer experience team for Cox. Great to have you on the show, TS. Thank you, Ryan. Great introduction. I should have you as uh, my intro guy everywhere. (laughs) I'll add that to my list of side hustles. Um, TS. (laughs) Your official title at Cox is, as we just covered off, right, VP of Experience Design and Customer Experience. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through how you define uh, those two different aspects of that title, uh, namely experience design and customer experience? Yeah, I grew up as a designer. And uh, when I think about design, I think about a future that doesn't exist. So uh, most designers, uh, whether they uh, talk about this or not, they believe in uh, create a future that has not been articulated in meaningful ways uh, for people to understand. So that becomes the design aspect of the job. Uh, I think about customer experience more in terms of the here and now. So uh, if you start thinking about what customers are going through today and how do you help solve for issues that they may be facing, regardless of the industry that you live in, right? So. Um, and that's how I think and approach uh, those two titles um, uh, in the job. And uh, it, it has various different facets, uh, as you can imagine, uh, when it relates to design uh, and uh, what it means to lead customer experience in different parts of your Yeah, and, and on that, um, at Cox specifically, mm-hmm. what is the business unit responsible for? Yeah, so um, Cox um, is, is a privately held company. So uh, the division that I'm part of is uh, the largest privately held telecommunication company. Uh, but apart from this unit, Cox also has um, uh, a division called Cox Auto, which uh, houses roughly about, uh, let's say, 20 different brands, inclusive of Auto Trader, Kelly Fuel Book, et cetera. So that's the entirety of the company. And uh, I'm in the telco side of the business. And within the telco side of the business, um, you can start to think of um, your internet service, uh, TV, phone, et cetera, as the core part of uh, our residential services. And then we have a uh, commercial side to that uh, which, uh, apart from focusing on connectivity, also has other SaaS offerings uh, that uh, they go to market with. So that's the telco side of the business uh, in a nutshell. Um, can you talk to me um, around about what's the value that you see of having a completely centralized end-to-end function in an organization responsible for understanding the entire customer journey? Uh, yeah, uh, um, I'll 
uh, I'll take this a couple of different ways. So you're talking about the value of something being centralized. Um, I also want to talk about the value of something not being centralized, right? So when do you go with centralized and when do you not go with centralized? Um, so uh, as a general principle, um, when I think about orgs, I think through the lens of um, uh, value creation for your stakeholders and um, you have a strategy that ends up and helps create that value. And then your organization is essentially set up uh, in that way. And in some instances, and this is regarding any discipline that you take, right? Um, in some instances, organizations may not have the maturity that's needed for a function to reside distributed within the organization, or more importantly, distributed as part of the culture of the organization. And in those situations are when I think about an organization that is centralized. Uh, and in this case, you could think of customer experience being centralized or consumer insights being centralized. And then there are other instances where um, you're so customer centric as a culture that you don't even need to have customer experience as a department that it is part and parcel of what you do in every aspect of your job, whether you're creating a product, you're selling, you're servicing a customer, you're marketing, whatever the case might be. And in those instances, you can think of it, the, the DNA of that organization having customer centricity baked into it, that you're not gonna need a centralized organization to be more customer centric. Right. So, and the underlying assumption there is uh, customer experience is about inducing customer centricity into the organization and the processes that you follow, whether that be in terms of creating um, a service, creating a product, servicing a customer, marketing to customers, etc. Right. So you can take that realm. And in that value equation, you can start to think about, okay, an organization needs to have a centralized department like customer experience when that value is not baked into your DNA or your culture. And that becomes a critical component of how you can start to think about the value that you bring. And then that creates a set of artifacts and your know, work outputs and inputs that start to define your department. And it also allows for customer experience to morph into other things as the company matures uh, through the life cycle, right? Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a clinical answer, but this is how I think about things. And it allows me to uh, set up organizations in a sustainable way so that it can run without uh, me being there as the creator of that organization, right? So that, anyway, that, that's how I think about it. Interesting. Um, I, on the culture side, um, yeah. I think it's often spoken about that, you know, it's, it's hard to change culture once you get past a, a certain number of employees, right? And, you know, I've heard numbers as low as 20. Once you pass 20 employees, it's very hard to change the direction of the culture. 
would it be what do you think of the statement then if we take that as being true that if you find yourself in a situation that you do have to have a centralized customer experience department that you're going to have that department forever more because the culture is impossible to change basically not you know not i'm sure it's possible to change it at the fringes but but possible to change the real dna of the organization yeah, and in that context, uh, you're going to need to start to think about um, customer experience as a centralized organization having multiple different facets. Um, uh, everything from uh, influencing culture to being a catalyst to being customer centric to um, how do you start making customer centricity be part of uh, the work input that uh, uh, that happens within the organization to um, how do you then create services and products that are more customer centric and uh, you start to operate and create uh, functional groups that bring in different expertise to enable those things, right? And in that context, you can start to think about it as um, if, uh, you know, um, that is not part of your, DNA, then you can start to think about research, design, and um, uh, policies and implementation of said policies, depending on the kind of org and the size of the org, um, to name a few different components of what could be customer experience um, within mm -hmm. the context of an organization, right? Um, but uh, you, you can start to compartmentalize this into components of, okay, where do we start to understand the maturity of, right, uh, design? Where do we start to understand the maturity of research? How do we make decisions? Are they based on uh, insights that are coming from um, customer-centric components uh, of the org or of the data sets that you're collecting? Um, how do you then uh, focus on hiring to um, uh, uh, the aspects of uh, service development and product development uh, through those lenses. And you can now start to create a matrix of how do we get to different levels of maturity uh, across these um, pillars, if you may, right? Um, and that becomes your charter and your journey of uh, what becomes centralized. And then maybe there are some components of it becomes decentralized and other components come into being centralized, right? So th that becomes, uh, in my mind, centered to individual organizations and individual cultures rather than a cookie cutter of, hey, this apply this everywhere uh, kind of situation. And uh, certainly I approach it with that mindset uh, in terms of creating orgs uh, such as uh, customer experience and experience design. And if, if you're in, if an organization has a kind of decentralized customer experience team, this idea that, you know, customer centricity mm -hmm. and, and customer experience is baked into all of the, the different sub-departments of an organization, do you feel like it's then, you know, necessary or have you seen um, it very often where these sub-departments will almost be KPI'd or asked to track their customer centricity or their customer experience or the outcomes they're delivering for customers? 
I, I'll say this. Uh, I'm not sure I can name the company that I know that doesn't have customer experience as a department. And I was, I was um, fascinated in understanding that culture. Um, and it's in the uh, retail side of the business. It, in any NPS study that you have seen about customer centricity or customer experience, they are in the top one or two, right? Um, and they don't have an official customer experience group. And they do not have an internal KPI that aligns to an NPS or a customer set. Um, mm. And I found that fascinating. And yet, they are the top-ranked company, like companies of companies, right? Like not, not just retailers, right? So I'm just giving that example to say that it is possible it is possible to have that kind of a culture, right? Um, and in those cases, um, it is also possible not to focus on customer-centric KPIs as we know it today, right? Um, and this is where I think KPIs in general is fascinating to me, um, where... Um, you know, most companies, when they think about customer experience, first they think about a survey and most likely they implement or um, initiate an organization that focuses on getting feedback from customers through the method of survey and then using that survey to um, solve for customer problems, issues and opportunities um, through the lens of, you know, uh, standard inner loop, outer loop kind of uh, uh, ecosystem uh, for operating that. But, um, you know, if I was king of the world and uh, I was creating a company, I would love to induce it into the culture where um, the KPIs are business measures in such a way that it gives me a lead measure view into what is the experience that customers are having rather than having to survey them to find out um, how customers are experiencing um, my product, my company, my service, et cetera, right? Um, obviously, I'm not king of the world. Uh, obviously, this is not- You're not kidding. Right? <laughs> uh, but- uh, uh, all I'm trying to point out there is uh, the the idea of KPIs um, and the idea of customer centric KPIs um, is uh, is something that um, uh, I, I love to explore deeply uh, because every aspect or every vertical uh, in, in a business uh, community that you can think of. Um, has its own set of KPIs that you could use as a proxy um, for understanding how customers are experiencing that said business, right? Um, and I think that's where the opportunity lies for customer experience as an industry, uh, because we are having a moment uh, in the world right at this moment. Uh, and, uh, 
Um, uh, I don't know if you read the news, but uh, the Biden administration just um, announced something about uh, focusing on customer experience um, and uh, uh, service delivery for the American people, which is uh, a fascinating uh, step uh, in, in, in the world, right? Uh, and you can start to see where uh, uh, that kind of idea is being birthed into a federal government. Um, and uh, uh, it certainly feels like the, the discipline as a whole uh, is having its moment or is arriving or has arrived when uh, uh, things like that happen. Yeah, I mean, surely government's got to be that stereotype of the slowest moving machine uh, in in known existence. So if, if they're focusing on customer experience, then absolutely there must be there must be some shifts in the wind. Um, you mentioned surveys. So, and something that I've been heard mention a whole lot recently, even in the last six months, it's felt like it's kind of increased is this idea of, of survey fatigue and, and customers just being over being surveyed. It seems like at every turn you're being surveyed. I get my groceries, I'm getting surveyed. It's just never ending. Um, what can we do about that? I, I, it feels like what you're alluding to there was there's other ways to try and measure how you're performing with customers that can be from the customer's lens be considered to be more passive. You're kind of using the interactions that the customer's having with your organisation to inform how you're doing without being explicit in asking them for feedback. But I also imagine that you're also saying, I I assume you're not saying that surveys don't have a place. I assume there's some sort of middle ground there. Uh, Yeah, so let me start by saying, um, and uh, I've talked about this a ton, there's no replacing um, feedback that customers can directly give to you uh, that talks about how they feel about an experience. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we replace that. I'm thinking more in terms of um, can we use that as a lag measure? Can we use survey as a way in which we can ascertain something when we have no other way to get at that information, right? Um, So the the fundamental question that we should be asking first is uh, why are we surveying inputs? What would we do differently um, as an organization that we're not doing today if we get this question answered by the customer, right? Um, And if it is about, um, I want to keep tabs on my employee to see if if he or she did their job well, that's a whole different story, right? Uh, Because I can give you examples of, uh, I had a plumbing issue in my house not too long ago, and uh, I had a plumber come in. Uh, and in fact, I had three different plumbing companies come in uh, to solve that problem one after the other. Um, and um, each instance, uh, the moment the person completed the job, I got a survey from them. Um, 
that said, how did so-and-so do, right? And if it is about keeping tabs on that plumber doing their jobs, look, um, uh, I'm not an expert at plumbing, but um, almost each one of these individuals who came into my home um, spent close to six to seven hours trying to solve the problem. And the first two did not successfully solve the problem, even though I wouldn't have known immediately. And uh, my answer to that question was always, yes, fantastic. Uh, this person worked so hard. And uh, I could like I could see the sweat and like this this guy was doing something in trying to solve the issue. And it like they did by the time they went home. And you know, 72 hours later, I had to call the next plumber. And the same story with the next plumber, right? Um, so that's why I ask, like, why are we asking the question from the customer, right? Um, because 72 hours later, I placed a phone call telling them they didn't solve the problem, right? Um, so that in and of itself is a good feedback mechanism. And uh, nine out of 10 times, I would have accepted that person coming back and fixing the issue. But in this instance, when I told them the issue is not resolved, they, the person who took care of the issue couldn't come back to resolve it. And they gave me a date that was another 72 hours away. And I just couldn't live without plumbing in my house. And I was already living with two kids uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a Marriott nearby, right? And uh, that, like, in that interaction, you can know a lot about, did you solve the problem? And you could know a lot about if the particular individual solved the problem. And um, so asking the why question is important and designing a survey um, in trying to answer that why is even more important and thinking about the experience that the customer is going to have in that context is um, is probably one of the least um, exercised uh, rides by companies and customer experience departments is thinking about how is this customer going to have this experience of just replying to the survey that we are asking, right? And those are all opportunities. And um, uh, the same thing happened with uh, when I had to fix my garage door, right? And um, we see this example in airports where airport toilets have the feedback mechanism with the smiley faces and the frowny faces, right? And if the goal is to find if a toilet is leaking, I feel like uh, we're, we're getting onto a plumbing kind of conversation here, but. <laughs> <laughs> but if the goal is to determine if if something is leaking in the toilet in the airport, there are other ways to get at it than just asking your customers to tell you uh, if through the frowny face or a smiley face to see if uh, happening in that uh, toilet, right? Um, so uh, that, that's just one example. And 
you could get into any other business, right? And they, uh, uh, right? Um, so if I'm using Capiche, um, and there is an outage on Capiche, um, you're going to know nine out of ten times before I know about it, right? You shouldn't have to ask me to. There's an outage. You shouldn't have to ask me that I couldn't was using Capiche for, right? All of that is available to you, right? Like that survey is not helping uh, in, in the context of finding outage type issues. But on the other hand, if you're trying to figure out uh, um, a relationship, uh, if you're trying to find out about uh, your pricing, um, all of those things, um, where there, there's not an easy way for you to find an answer other than to trial and error different things, right? Um, you can employ other methodologies. So the, the net answer where I'm going with this is use survey not as, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to use it as the only tool that's available to me um, to get customer feedback but uh, rather use it as a very precious um, tool that you have in your toolkit and use it sparingly, especially in a world where uh, your plumber, your garage door repair person, your handyman, everyone is surveying the individual that you consider as a customer. Mm. So um, this... that's the context in which I think about this. The software example is interesting because like when you when you think that through, and of course it's obvious in the world of software, but basically what you're saying is if a piece of software that you're using goes down and then the software company surveying you to say, hey, is our software down? You probably couldn't think of many things as infuriating as an experience like that. And we're, we're just not accustomed to dealing with software companies like that. We know that they should know better and we know that they shouldn't have to survey us. So I wonder if it's a case of that expectation of the type of experience we're going to get with, with different organisations to, to lean into the plumbing trend with our plumber. We kind of expect them to know that things didn't go well and not ask us how well did it go. And if I can imagine a world where if organizations aren't adapting to figuring out how to do that themselves, you're actually going to be damaging the experience that you're delivering to customers by asking them to kind of do the grunt work for you, right? Like you should be able to figure out, we should, you know, Capiche should be able to figure out if the software's down. The plumbing organization should be able to figure out if they didn't fix your problem. They're simply outsourcing the work to you to try and short circuit uh, the work that they have to do and perhaps provide efficiencies on, on whether they're delivering on the promise that they said that they would. Right, exactly. And um, they, let's go uh, more into the software world, right? Um, a, most of us use a um, collaboration and communication tool like a Zoom, like a Teams, like a GoToMeeting, et cetera. Um, and almost um, universally, uh, there's a rating system at the end of the meeting, right? Um, and there's a, uh, or a questionnaire that says, would you recommend? Uh, there's a question that says, how was your meeting? Whatever the case might be, right? Uh, it, it ranges depending on the company you're dealing with. 
And the question that I would ask uh, is, don't you know already from the session information, if you drop packets, you probably know if I had audio issues already, right? Um, and why are you asking that question? Now, if you're asking that question to confirm that there was a bad audio quality in the meeting, that's a whole different ball of wax, right? But your primary goal is to find if there was an issue or use that to find or investigate or use that as a signal to investigate in the plethora of data that you collect. Now I have issues with that. Right. Yeah, and I almost guarantee you they're using it to try train something to pick up when there is issues. And when I think about my usage of those systems, I only ever use that survey when it didn't go well and I almost universally hit the frowny face. And I think your point's interesting because I have no doubt that they can tell when a call hasn't gone well. And if the purpose of the survey is to just sanity check that their own diagnosis is correct, the question wouldn't be rate the call. The question would be, hey, we feel like you had issues on this call and that we didn't deliver the service that you wanted. Is that correct? Spot on, right? And that's exactly what I'm trying to point out is in that particular instance, it feels more like you understand the situation that I was just in and you're trying to confirm whether your understanding of the situation I was in is actually true. If yes, then you do something about it, right? Um, you make your software better or you would try to um, unpack and find out where the root causes are for that issue, right? And the second aspect of uh, the surveying and uh, the, you know, the inner loop and outer loop um, uh, that I want people to focus on, which is focus on the root cause. Right. Um, so asking that question as a confirmation of the signal is the first step. Right. The second step is to make sure that that issue that is truly causing that doesn't ever happen again, ever for any customers utilizing your software. Right. And if you use your feedback mechanism in that way, now, all of a sudden, that feedback mechanism is part and parcel of your product. It's part and parcel of how you deliver the experience. And you're thinking about the experience that the customer is having, and you're using your software to understand that particular aspect of it. And you're able to solve the said issue in meaningful ways. Now, Going back to your first question, you can start thinking about what does a centralized organization do in those situations? And wouldn't we want to have a triad working on that um, in a software company um, that's focused on uh, analyzing those uh, issues? And you probably want someone who's um, uh, a software engineer going deep into understanding the root cause of the said issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you can start to see how all of these things are so interconnected in terms of um, your approach for 
um, your product, uh, your strategy for the services that you deliver, your feedback mechanism, what you use to get that feedback, et cetera, and how you structure the organization as a result of that. Yeah, I'm almost willing to bet in a software organization that would ultimately end up living in a growth team, which is a whole other discussion. Something that I that I wanted to mention was it feels like now is the perfect time, right? It, all of the interactions, not all, but the vast majority of interactions that customers are having with organizations are being digitized, right? And that means that these organizations have access in a digital format to all of this data that they never really had access to before, which means that you should be able to rely on a little less the surveys and a little more on all the other signals that are being provided to you without you know, having to go through the rigmarole of trying to digitize those those data sources. Completely agree. Uh, now you're speaking my language, right? And now you can start to utilize that same data in interesting ways to help set up scores that are coming from that data set that start to mimic and look like your survey results, right? So for instance, um, the, uh, uh, the examples that I would use are, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, in a, uh, someone's using a software and they need to join a meeting and, um, they're not able to join the meeting. They try to troubleshoot it. They are not able to troubleshoot it. And then they end up calling and then it gets resolved by whatever the, person on the other side said the customer to go do, right? So in that equation, um, the idea of uh, a customer trying to join a meeting is already capped in some capacity on your software. Um, and you're able to understand uh, what could have caused that issue, or at least that there was an issue. Now you start to realize that that same customer ends up calling you to address that issue. Now you can start to unpack that to say, okay, what if I use that data set to say, if a customer is able to solve that problem all by themselves, I will weight that at a lower end of the spectrum than when they have to call us because the effort involved and calling is much higher after trying to solve it all by themselves. And as a result, that is a problem and um, that we need to solve and focus on immediately. And maybe we create an effort index that helps us understand based on the combination thereof that as the index gets higher because the effort is higher for the customer, those are problem areas that we need to focus immediately. Right. And as the effort gets to be lower, those are a second set of priority, understanding that, uh, you know, you don't have unlimited capacity to go solve for these things in meaningful ways. So um, then you could use that same data to then say, OK, how did the customer end up trying to solve that problem all by themselves? Right. Um, was there something within the product documentation or did they go to a site? Uh, trying to search for how to solve for X, Y, or Z, and how useful was the content that was being presented from the set site or from the support system uh, that starts to unpack 
um, how you approach your content strategy for your support of the site, right? Say the same data set, now you're able to unpack and utilize in different parts of your organization to help resolve um, issues, not only for the customer, but also create purpose behind what the organization is supposed to do, right? So someone who is writing content, they can look at that content and go, okay, a customer read this, they still didn't solve the problem, and then they ended up calling us. Let's go listen to the call and see what happened, right? Or let's go talk to agents and see what kinds of issues are customers saying they're having when they come into, and what portion of my uh, content here doesn't resonate with the customer that they have to now call, right? Like now you can start to rewrite the content or now you can uh, focus on if it is on the uh, product side of the equation, you can start to say, okay, why is this problem happening? What is it that we can do from a software standpoint to rewrite the software so that this problem never happens again, right? So that creates uh, a, another story to run on a sprint to go solve for, for the product side of the house, right? And if you're starting to look at the customer success, et cetera, like that same data can be used for each of these departments so that they could be successful in their jobs, right? And mm -hmm. that is an opportunity that um, needs to get uh, harvested and utilized by the company as a whole. As opposed to, you know, you could start seeing where you'll see a survey you know is coming from the growth team. You know that's that's a survey that's coming from the support team or a survey that's coming from the customer success team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the reality of um, fairly large organizations um, where uh, maybe things aren't realized going back to your first question, right? And uh, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Or uh, they are not uh, focusing on the data sets that they already have where they don't have to ask the customer the same question, you know, five different ways and put them in the situation where they're fatigued uh, with the surveys that are headed. And if you've, actually, if you've managed to implement surveys such that they're a lagging indicator of, of you know, effort or success or however you want to define it for the customer, you then have this really um, synchronous system where this predictive score that you're churning out to say, hey, this is what we think the effort was for, that the customer had to go on based on all the data that we're seeing. You can correlate that to the lagging effort score indicator that you get from a survey to see how strongly correlated those two scores are. And you almost, you, you can kind of self-correct, right, to see if you're on the right track in terms of your own internal scoring and predictive predictions. Spot on. And to add on to that, if you have the prediction coming from a machine learning or an AI-based system, now you can start to utilize your surveys more of a learning component as opposed to um, a, a, a true lag measure, right, um, where mm. you can say it with confidence that the lead measure is the only measure that we're going to need in the long run. And we will continue to do the surveys, but that is purely for the learning algorithm that 
we are implementing where these predictive scores are getting charged, right? And mm. of course, the next step, in the, especially if you're a software company, is to be able to predict when that experience is going to go downhill, right? Yeah. Um, and use that to uh, either be in a situation where you could uh, self-heal through the software itself, or mm. you find yourself in a place where you have to fall back to human intervention, and maybe that human intervention is on uh, your side as opposed to the customer side, right? Mm. And the last step might be human intervention by the customer themselves because the problem is something that you have no control over. As someone that has a little bit of experience at ML and AI, I would encourage people to make sure there's some sort of feedback loop to make sure that prediction doesn't go AWOL. To, to stick on the theme of quoting the news, there was an article recently about a real estate company who was algorithmically buying houses and got themselves into a bit of a tangle where the algorithm was buying houses for $200,000 more and then offering it back to the person they bought it from two months later. So you want to make sure that the AI doesn't run wild. But yes, I think it does sound like a, a fantastic nirvana. Um, I wanted to get into how you see the difference. I mean, I've heard you speak about in this podcast so far, I've heard you talk about insights, I've heard you talk about research, I've heard you talk about customer experience. How do you see the difference between customer experience and insights and research? Um, are they the one and the same thing? Are they different disciplines? How do you think those things relate to each other? Uh, yeah, so, um, so you said insights, experience, and what is the last one? Research, which I think you could kind of consider research. just to be a, a kind of almost a specialization or a, or a synonym for insights. Uh, yeah, so um, the way I think about these things um, and uh, uh, consumer insights or um, behavioral science or um, uh, just user research in general. Um, if you start to think about these things in terms of the tasks that they perform, um, the end goal is to create insights um, or uh, uh, nuggets of information that someone can use to uh, either solve an unsolved problem or uh, confirm that uh, the hypothesis that you had going into uh, the analysis was essentially true or false, right? Um, and there are different aspects to those, right? So um, you do research uh, for different purposes. Uh, you, you do research to understand um, what price a said widget should uh, go for in the marketplace and um, you're setting price and you're doing research on pricing, right? Um, so needed function, right? Um, uh, user experience research focuses on understanding usability issues and experience issues that customers are having so that you could uh, reimagine or refactor your experience in meaningful ways. So needed, right? Um, uh, customer experience research focuses on experience at a higher altitude that transcends um, uh, different touch points and channels uh, so that uh, 
once again, uh, you try to solve for issues, right? So uh, the similarities are in the uh, methodologies and the techniques that these different groups use um, to uh, find those insights, right? Um, so uh, a lot of different organizations have this function centralized um, or at least partially centralized uh, under different parts of the org. Um, and I've seen it in product, I've seen it be part of technology, I've seen it be part of marketing, etc. Um, so it, it has resided in all kinds of different uh, groups depending on um, the kind of organization and the size and uh, what is it that they do. Um, for me, uh, I look at it through the lenses of um, uh, the outcomes that we are hoping to derive from each one of these. And uh, once again, I, like I, I started the conversation by talking about my approach philosophy on how I think about um, value creation using a strategy and then to employ that and deploy that strategy for your stakeholders and create value, you create an organizational structure that then focuses on creating that value, right? And in that context, you could approach it in different ways, but ultimately it's going to depend on um, the organizational structure uh, and what is it that you're trying to achieve for your stakeholders that is going to determine whether it's centralized or partly centralized or completely decentralized. Um, and um, depending on the organization and the strategy, I would have a different answer um, for the said organization. Um, but uh, in the context of my experience, I have seen it um, uh, somewhere between partially centralized to completely centralized. I've never seen it completely decentralized. Interesting. Um, I'm conscious that we are pushing on an hour soon. I do have one more question for you that I want to ask mm -hmm. before we get onto the rapid fire round. And I, I want to ask this question because I think, you know, we always want to leave people with some actionable um, advice that they can implement at their own organization. So, you know, you've got a lot of experience with large organizations. What would your advice be for a large organization that wants to become more customer centric, especially those um, that can see the value but don't quite know where to start? Yeah, that's fantastic qualification um, there. Um, uh, and what I would say is um, uh, at a minimum, if they understand the value of uh, focusing on your customers, they probably have a value chain understanding of why they want to focus on the customer, right? Um, that would be a given. Um, otherwise, that's the place that I would ask most people to start. Um, and in my mind, that value chain um, also has answers to how, as an organization, um, you approach uh, uh, customer centricity. And nine out of 10 times in large organizations, um, apart from getting to the brass tacks of understanding uh, customer journeys, um, a big portion of and uh, uh, 
time and energy that gets spent on is storytelling. Uh, because you're trying to move a very large organization, I'm assuming somewhere between 30,000 and, you know, 12,000 or a million, right? Like, depending on the kind of organization. And telling stories from the vantage point of customers, um, sometimes is underappreciated because everyone starts to focus on the raw data and the um, numbers aspects um, of customer experience. And it's very easy to focus on that, especially if you're a large organization, especially if you have uh, petabytes of data uh, that uh, you're trying to create uh, uh, insights from, right? Um, but telling those stories are a key method to unpacking and unleashing the power of the organization, right? Especially if you want the entire organization to be customer-centric, stories about customers and applied of those customers. Um, and, you know, we generally talk about issues, but we also want to talk about things that you're doing well customers, right, that you want to retain um, in your organization, in your culture, telling those stories become the most central theme to how you deliver on that promise very quickly, right? Um, because all the other things that you want to do in terms of creating insights, utilizing data, you either have tools or you have very smart people within your organization that are capable of doing that and would be fantastic at doing. But um, what I find is seldom there are good storytellers um, who are able to use that data in meaningful ways to tell real stories about the customers that they are serving to create change within the organization. Um, that would be the one place where I would say focus and create energy around. Uh, that could turn around things very quickly, but also it can unleash the power of your entire organization when they start believing in those things. It's much easier to empathize with the real world story of a customer and, and experience that they've had than it is a net promoter score, right? <laughs> yes. I, I feel like we could... We could genuinely go on for several more hours, but I'm uh, conscious of time. So I want to move on to the, the rapid fire question round. Um, so I'm going to run through five questions. Um, rapid fire, I mean, that's kind of just a name. I'm going to do it at regular speed um, about customer insights and experience and about yourself. You ready? I think I'm ready. Okay. Easy one first. What's the best piece of a customer insights or experience advice that you have ever received? Uh, yeah, so maybe it's cliche to say, listen to your customers. But um, uh, one of the things uh, that uh, this is a true uh, experience, I used to work for a, um, a long time back. And um, uh, one of the stories that uh, I tell people is, um, uh, we were listening to our customers talk about their wireless bill. And um, one of the phrases that they use um, was, um, uh, when do my new minutes start? Uh, you can 
uh, understand the era that I'm talking about. Uh, people are focused on their myths, right? Um, and uh, we didn't quite understand initially what that meant. Um, and, you know, we talk about billing periods as a start of a billing period, ending of a like very technical in terms of how we approach and probably very sterile, right? And when we heard that, we were like, oh, I see what customers are talking about when they say, when do I know that it start? And we took that exact phrase and used it on our website to say, this is when we're doing it start, right? So uh, if you want to think about how listening to your customers actually creates application in their world, like that's exactly what we did. Um, and uh, that has stuck with me and um, to budding designers and researchers and people who are starting in this uh, discipline, uh, that's one of the things that I say is um, one of the easiest things that you can do is listen to your customers and use the words that they use so that it doesn't have to be yours. And you're going to create empathy to the audience that you're delivering that to. Um, and that is probably the easiest thing that you can do. Great piece of advice and uh, a slight segue. This is why I always um, am a little bit shell-shocked when people think that they can rely on machines to help them understand people and find the answers. Like I think machines definitely should help you take the low-value work off your plate, but it's so important to have people that understand the context of the business and the context of the customer involved in that process to do that interpretation and and present it in the right way to the business. There's no way a machine's going to know that people talking about minutes mean billing periods. Uh, <laughs> yes. And the, the, the thing that I say to people quite often is um, utilizing machine learning and AI doesn't absolve you of your power of thinking, right? You still have to think. And that is not going to go away, right? Mm. Um, and um, in that context, you could uh, you could think of your AI and machine learning as your coworker. Uh, and mm. in the manufacturing setting, they call them cobots, right? So a robot that works with you, right? Um, and we have to think about AI as something that works with us and um, when you think about setting up organizational processes, you think about what is the input, what is the output, and where does it go, what does the workflow look like? And when you're AI, that's a component that you need to think about in terms of input, outputs, downstream, upstream from that um, machine that's working with you in helping you do your job or a series of people's jobs um, uh, effectively. So. Uh, well, to continue the tangent, in an insights and research capacity, I wholeheartedly believe that when it comes to AI and ML, the framing that I like is that it should be removing the low-value grunt work off your plate and giving you more space and more time to do the thinking, do the bit that the human's uniquely positioned to do that the human can uniquely provide value in. Uh, not replace a human. And if that's not being met, then I, I think 
think the the entire to, to use your analogy the design of the organizational process is wrong right right okay we're already not rapid fire but let's continue on what are you what are you most excited about in the world of customer insights or experience right now and going back to what we just talked about the power of ai the power of machine learning um and the interesting ways that um, we're able to utilize it where um, the machine helps us understand patterns that I cannot understand through the tools that I have at my disposal and the capacity that I have with my brain. Um, that is uh, super exciting for me where we can uh, utilize that as a starting point uh, for your research, to go back to your example, where um, we use machine learning to understand patterns and to understand those patterns deeply, we then focus on that aspect of customers where we can go talk about that experience that they have and what is so unique in their own words that a machine can understand is unique. Uh, value for us as an organization, right? Mm -hmm. That marriage um, is something that um, uh, we have been exploring for a while at this point, and um, uh, I think that's rich with opportunities. Um, I'm super yeah. excited uh, for both companies um, as well as uh, startups that are, uh, that are enabling uh, the technology to create those and understand those patterns. Agreed. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Yeah. Um, um, the book that I'm going to uh, recommend is uh, The Next Hundred Years, um, and it's around geopolitics and strategy. Um, and there's a lot in there about insights, um, but as it relates to geopolitics. Mm. Uh, but I see parallels between um, geopolitics and the approach that that author takes uh, in the book Next 100 Years and the work that I do. Um, and um, I never thought um, it would inspire me in ways that uh, uh, it's been fascinating for me. It's, it's a book uh, that came out a few years back. It's not a new one. Um, and I've cherished it and I've gone back to it several times. Yeah, awesome. We'll make sure we put a link in the show notes to where people can find that book. Um, what's an interesting little fun fact about you that, that most people don't know? Uh, other than I don't want to talk about myself. But <laughs> 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 um, maybe the, the interesting one, um, uh, I was telling the story to someone recently, um, uh, I came to this country as an immigrant for my master's, for my graduate studies, and then I ended up uh, um, getting into a PhD program. Um, and uh, in the US, when you go through a PhD program, you have to take, uh, I think, about 48 or 60 hours of credit hours of uh, coursework. Um, and um, uh, I filled it up with uh, computer science and statistics. 
um, largely because um, uh, of the topic that I was uh, researching at that time. Um, and uh, uh, little did I know that was going to be super helpful in the career that I have today. <laughs> um, yes. Because uh, that uh, was a um, unexpected, uh, happy coincidence uh, that uh, I have the career I have today. And I don't think I could uh, have it without uh, those years that I spent taking 8 a.m. classes and stats and computer science. Yeah, interesting. Um, if folks want to get in touch with UTS, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the easiest way. Uh, um, uh, I'll be happy to respond to people on LinkedIn and uh, I'm happy to connect with folks and talk to them. Amazing. I'll make sure that we put your uh, link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. TS, thanks for joining us today. That's been super insightful. And like I said, I feel like we could have gone for another hour or two, so maybe we'll have to look to do it again. Um, I really appreciate the background insight you have into this space. Clearly uh, very knowledgeable. So thank you. I really appreciate the time and uh, offer to come into the show and do this. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys.